Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark. We will pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. So uh, I had a good time away. I was performing uh, the wedding for Michael and Maddie two Sundays ago. That went well, and we took last week off. Yeah, we can give them a hand. Congratulations once again. Down in Bloomington, it was perfect fall weather in Bloomington. Beautiful trees was uh, a great, great occasion. And uh, last Sunday, yeah, Mary and I took, took some time off. So good to be back with you. Uh, good to get back to Mark. Thank you to Pastor Brian and Andrew, who I know brought the word well last couple of Sundays. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in front of you. We have paperback Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to take one of those Bibles home with you as our gift to you, but the passage is on page 491 today, Mark 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Some of you may know about a book that was released uh, almost 20 years ago now. It was called Under the Banner of Heaven, and um, was written by a guy named John Krakauer, I think is how you pronounce it. It's just, I think this year, been turned into a mini-series, TV series. <clears throat> and the book is about two men, brothers named Ron and Dan Lafferty. And back in 1984, they murdered a, a woman and her small child. And the reason why they committed this murder, according to them, was because... God told them to. They said that they had received some kind of special revelation. They were part of some kind of fringe Mormon cult. God told them to. So there's a sense in which we could maybe even make the argument that you can hardly blame them because, I mean, God is the highest authority in all the universe. When God tells us to do something, we should do it, right? There's nothing more important than doing what God tells us to do. But the deeper question here that I'm overlooking in this explanation is how do we know that God told them to do that? And that raises a very important question for all of us. How do we know when God speaks? How do we know when we're hearing His voice? Who does have the right to speak with divine authority? Well, that's very relevant for us to consider on Reformation Sunday because that was one of the major disputes in the church leading up to the time of the, Reva, uh, the Reformation. <clears throat> in fact, um, we have some technical terms here. The material cause of the Reformation is said to be sola fide, that is that we are saved through faith alone in Christ. But the formal cause of the Reformation has to do with this issue of authority, who has authority to speak for God? So in the church in the early centuries, it was largely agreed upon that Scripture was the final authority. But as the centuries went on, the Roman Catholic Church at the time began to incorporate church tradition alongside Scripture as equal forms of authority. And that disagreement actually continues to this very day. Uh, in fact, we might say that in the early centuries of the church, the main debate in the church was the person of Christ and how we describe the Trinity up until the Reformation in the 16th century. But after the Reformation, for the last several hundred years, the dispute has been over the nature of Scripture. 
and how we understand when God speaks and how God speaks. But that dispute, again, continues to this current day. Here is the uh, Catholic uh, Catechism quote here. If I can uh, turn this thing on, let's see. There we go. Catholic Catechism says this, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That is tradition. That is the the teachings of the the popes and the councils and the, the church councils throughout the ages. In the Catholic Church, those are considered to be equally authoritative to Scripture. The Catholic Church holds the Bible to be authoritative, for sure. But it's just this question of what they have added. And What's so interesting is that just happens to be the debate we're going to be looking at today in Mark chapter 7. In Jesus' day, there was a very similar debate between Scripture and tradition. Not exactly the same as the debate that has taken place between the Protestant and Catholic Church, but but certainly very relevant. And so in God's providence, this passage comes to us on Reformation Sunday, Mark chapter 7. So if you're able to stand, please do so. And let me read these first 13 verses of Mark 7. Mark 7, 1 through 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that is to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Lord God in heaven, send your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear and to open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, we're considering today this debate or this dispute here between Jesus and tradition that we've just seen in this text. And um, the first thing I want to look at here from this text, looking at verses 1 through 6, is the, the use of tradition as a fence around Scripture, okay? Using tradition as a fence around Scripture. So I'll explain more in a moment 
what I mean by that. But let's just look to the text and uh, see what God has to say to us. So the text begins here in verse 1. Now remember the last time we were in Mark, we saw that Jesus walked on water before the disciples going across the lake. And now we see that the Pharisees are coming up from Jerusalem along with the scribes to check out in more detail what Jesus is doing. So word has gotten to Jerusalem. Religious authorities are very concerned. And so they are coming to Jesus here and even gathering around him, it says. You get the sense that there's uh, maybe multiple Pharisees and scribes, that they're basically cornering Jesus, kind of getting him in perhaps an intimidating situation to press on him and ask him questions. And they notice something in verse 2, that is, that they see that Jesus' disciples are eating with unwashed hands. They're eating while defiled, that is, unwashed. And then it goes on in verse 3 to say the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. Now, here in the day of COVID, we we know a lot about washing hands, right? I mean, for many of us, we've become almost obsessive about washing our hands, and in many cases, probably for good reason. You can go into bathrooms and restaurants and there are signs on the wall that tell you how to wash your hands, give you very specific directions. Hand sanitizer everywhere, right? We got it right out in the foyer here at the church. What we have become obsessed with washing our hands for the sake of hygiene. What you need to understand to get this passage is that is not the reason why the Pharisees were washing their hands. This is not an issue of getting germs off your hands. It's not an issue of hygiene. It's not really even an issue of, of, of sin. It's an issue of ceremonial cleanness. It's, it's a matter of ritual purity among the Jews. It's a matter of keeping distance from those things that the Scriptures would declare to be unclean. So, for instance, in the Torah, the Old Testament law, there are a number of things described as unclean, certain animals, um, dead bodies, certain bodily discharges, Gentiles, that is, people who were not Jews, these were all considered to be unclean. And what would happen is, if you would touch any of these things, you yourself would become unclean, and if you were unclean, You could not go to the temple. You could not go and worship God. You could not be among the people of God. That's how serious this was to the average Jew. And you might notice here that it says that uh, they um, do this as they come back from the marketplace. It says in verse 4, the marketplace is the place where you would be prone, perhaps, to have contact with a lot of unclean things. So particularly when you come back from the market... You're going to make sure that your hands are clean. And it even goes so far to the touching of objects. So you see that in verse 4, as uh, well, verse 3 and 4, as Mark makes this point that there are other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So if you were unclean and you touched those things, those things would be unclean, and then anybody who would touch them, they would become unclean. And so it just became a very serious thing in the minds of the average Jewish 
person. But here's the crucial thing to notice here for our purposes this morning, is that in the Torah, in the Old Testament law, only the priests were called upon to wash their hands before they entered the temple. And there was no restriction in the Torah at all for washing hands while you were eating meals. So there was no biblical binding command on the Pharisees or Jesus' disciples to wash hands while they were eating. And yet here the Pharisees are so concerned, and they're saying to Jesus, why is it that your disciples are not washing their hands? Their hands are unclean. What's going on? So what is their concern? Why are they so bothered by this? It's not a scriptural, biblical thing, and the reason why is because of the end of verse 3. They're holding to the tradition of the elders. It's the tradition that got them so concerned. See, here's what happened. Is that over the years, the elders, the leaders of the covenant community at the time began to develop a growing list of rules and guidelines and regulations that were intended to protect the integrity of the Scriptures. The whole purpose of all these rules was to protect people from disobeying God's law. And so what they ended up doing was setting up a fence around Scripture by the use of the development of these traditional rules and regulations. I mean, in one sense, you can't blame them for that. I mean, these were people who were very concerned about holiness and cleanness. That's a good thing. And so they wanted to help people to avoid disobeying God, displeasing God. But, but here's what happened, is they began to just kind of develop in their minds just every single conceivable circumstance that they could imagine that might lead a person to violate Torah, and they came up with a rule for it. And so, as an example, and I've shared some of these examples for you before, but one example, I'm not sure if I use this one or not, but for instance, on the Sabbath, you are not supposed to wear false teeth. And the reason why is because if you wore false teeth on the Sabbath and you kind of bent over and your false teeth fell out on the ground, you'd have to bend down to pick them up. And that would constitute work. And you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So, set up a rule. No false teeth on the Sabbath. There's a thing called the Mishnah, which is a compilation of all of these rules, the tradition of the elders. Just one thing after another. Every conceivable circumstance is imagined and a rule is set up to protect people from disobeying God. That's what's meant by the tradition of the elders. Now, I want to pause just for a moment and, and kind of put the brakes on us being kind of too hard on tradition because, again, you know, these Pharisees are devoted. You know, they are passionate. They are committed to obeying God. And there's a little lesson here, too, that just because you're sincerely committed to something doesn't mean you're right. You know, imagine those guys that flew those planes into the World Trade Center in 9-11. I mean, they were devoted to their religion, weren't they? But we don't say, well, since they were so passionate about what they believed in, wow, that's something to be respected. No, you can be passionately wrong, and it can create big problems. And so Pharisees here, they're, they're passionate about that, but you just have to give them credit for wanting to please God. But also, there's nothing wrong with tradition in itself. 
We should value tradition. There's a number of areas in which we should value tradition. All of us have various traditions. We have certain family traditions, right? You have certain ways you celebrate birthdays and holidays and Christmas in your family. There are national traditions. We celebrate the 4th of July. We sing the Star Spangled Banner. We light off fireworks on the 4th of July. It's, it, it's, it's a tradition. There are Christian traditions. We celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Bible doesn't tell us to celebrate Christmas on December 25th. It's a tradition. We have certain traditions for how we conduct Christian weddings. You might have traditions in the workplace. Again, how you celebrate birthdays. When I was at the Manufacturers Association, it was always cake in the conference room. And we would go down and we would celebrate whoever's birthday. Um, we have traditions here at New Life. You all came here at 10.30 this morning to worship. That's not commanded in Scripture. Worshiping is commanded, but being here at 10.30, that's a tradition. We have officers here, elders and deacons, who are elected to three-year terms. That doesn't come out of the Scriptures either. It's a tradition. There's a certain dress code that we have here. Most of us come dressed somewhat casually today. We don't have a lot of suit and ties here at New Life. That's fine. There's a certain tradition we have here about how we dress. All of these are traditions. They're not mandated in Scripture, and they serve a good purpose for which they have been adopted in particular situations. But here's where traditions go bad. Traditions go bad when man-made rules become God-given commands. And that's what's going on here in Mark chapter 7. These traditions with, which were perhaps started by the Pharisees with good intentions have risen to the level of being equal in authority to Scripture itself and have become binding on the conscience of everybody. And that's where tradition goes bad. Tradition is not equal in authority to Scripture Tradition is subordinate to Scripture. In all due respect to the Catholic Church, we disagree with them on this issue as Protestants. But instead of you know, pointing fingers at somebody else, we probably ought to think about how we ourselves perhaps embrace certain traditions that are not authoritative to Scripture. I mean, just think personally, I mean, how we kind of tend to do this. We we adopt certain traditions, even personally. You know, we have certain ways of doing things. Maybe the ways we raise our children and the restrictions we put on our kids and the way we educate them and we get it in our head that here's the way it ought to be. And we tend to look down on people who don't do it quite like us. Or we develop a certain exercise routine or, or a diet or something. And it works for us. It's really good for us. And we look at those who aren't quite so disciplined and we think, what's the matter with them? How come they're not doing this like me? We might dress a certain way. On Sunday mornings, we look at somebody else who's really overdressed or someone who's really underdressed. We begin to judge them. Why don't they dress like me? Don't they notice that I'm the one who has the balance perfect here in how to dress on Sunday morning? The car we drive, the house we live in, you know, some of us will just get certain ideas that as a Christian, here's how much you should spend on these things, here's the neighborhoods you should live in, this is what is good for us, and then we just kind of elevate it, it's unconscious I'm sure, but we just elevate it to a place of divine authority. 
and we feel pretty proud about what we do, and we look down upon those who don't do it like us. I mean, that happens, right? How about in the church? <clears throat> in the church, there are certain traditions that get elevated. There, there, are, there are seven words that reveal a situation where tradition has gained too much authority. Seven words. We've never done it that way before. <laughs> you know, we don't have that problem here at New Life. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that, but, but I know that gets said a lot. Someone has a great idea about a new ministry or about maybe phasing out an old ministry or just a different way to do something, and the answer is, from someone in authority, we've never done it that way before. In other words, since we've never done it that way before, that means it's a tradition and we can't violate the tradition. We can't go around it. We have to do it this way. I mean, there are other ways that the church worships. A lot of churches practice altar calls. And maybe some of you who have been here have wondered, why don't they ever do an altar call at New Life? I know a lot of people who have been saved through altar calls. I say praise God for His work of grace during altar calls. But altar calls are a tradition. They're not commanded in Scripture. We're commanded to call people to faith. We're commanded to evangelize. That's not the same as an altar call. There's a certain way of doing, doing altar calls that we believe not mandated in Scripture. How about certain holidays? Mother's Day, Father's Day. <laughs> I mean, we acknowledge those here at, at New Life. We love mothers and fathers, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but those holidays are traditions. There's no command in Scripture to celebrate mothers and fathers specifically. Sorry. <laughs> it's a tradition. We're happy to acknowledge our mothers and fathers, but, but they're not mandated in Scripture. How many, have you ever noticed that there's not an American flag in the sanctuary here? That's a tradition. I, I know that there are some churches where you go into the church and they would say, what, are these people communists? They don't have a flag in their sanctuary? Do these people have no respect for mothers and fathers because they don't celebrate these holidays? Friends, friends these are traditions. They're traditions. And they should not gain equal authority as Scripture itself. The most serious problem that happens when tradition gets too much authority is, that, is, is when people begin to assume that their devotion to the tradition is what gets them closer to God. <laughs> that's where it gets really serious. And, and that's where we see really the difference between grace and works. The, the gospel is about grace. The gospel says salvation, forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life is something that is given to you. It's offered for free. You would just receive it by faith, sola fide. It's based on the work of somebody else. That's salvation by grace. Salvation by works, though, is let's see how many rules I can set up to follow so that I can feel good about myself for all the good things that I'm doing. That's what the Pharisees are doing. That they're just obeying rules. They're on this treadmill. When you fall into a works righteousness, this is the way you live. You're always trying to justify yourself. You're always trying to present yourself as good enough. You're always trying to make yourself look better than others. That's the motive behind the Pharisees. Why don't your disciples do it like we do, Jesus? We wash our hands all the time. Why not them? That's revealing a works righteousness in their hearts. And it can 
can happen to all of us. We get ideas in our mind about what is right, we submit to them, and we think this is what is making me presentable to God. Confidence for salvation, friends, is not in what you do. It's in what Jesus has already done. As Titus chapter 3 tells us here, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, whether devotion to the Scriptures or tradition, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, and we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. That's the grace of the gospel. And the Pharisees had fallen in to this works righteousness based on their tradition. They were using tradition as a fence around Scripture. Not a bad idea, but it went bad. It went wrong. The better thing to do, second point, is using Scripture as a fence around tradition. That's better. And so let's look and see how this comes out of our text. Verse 6, how, how does Jesus respond to the, the Pharisees? Um, <clears throat> wow, Jesus is really going to let them have it here, friends. Verse 6, he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Wow, I mean... Well, you talk like that in church today, you'll get canceled. But uh, here's Jesus using strong language. Now, let me just pause for, for a moment. Um, you know, this is probably one of the most frequent charges against Christians in the church. Church is so full of hypocrites. That's why I don't want to become a part of the church. So full of hypocrites. I mean, if you're aware of your own sinfulness, what you'll say to that charge is guilty as charged. You're right. I mean, I, I am a hypocrite. I'll say that as your pastor. I know that I can be hypocritical. But we just freely acknowledge it. That's why we need a Savior, friends. That's why Jesus died, to save hypocrites like you and like me. So we can freely admit, yeah, the church has a hypocrisy problem. But we can say to someone who is concerned about this, look, if you want to follow somebody who hates hypocrisy even more than you do, consider Jesus. Because Jesus is no friend of hypocrites. He's a friend of sinners, yes, but he challenges hypocrisy. That's what he is doing now. Jesus is calling out hypocrisy in verse 6. So how are these Pharisees hypocrites? By the way, this term for hypocrites is a, a term from the theater uh, it has to do with this idea of, of wearing masks. So the theater in Jesus' day, this is how actors would do it. They would wear masks. They would kind of take a certain role, and they would present through their masks a, a certain impression that was different than the person they really were. That's where that term comes from, presenting an outward appearance that is different than the way that you are inwardly. That's technically a hypocrite, and that's what the Pharisees are doing here. And the way they're doing it, Jesus goes on to explain in verse 6. He says, you hypocrites. And he <clears throat> quotes Isaiah 29 here. And what he's saying here is he's taking this Old Testament passage and saying, you Pharisees, you're fulfilling what the prophet said hundreds of years ago. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Here's how the Pharisees are being hypocrites. They are on the outside appearing to be devoted to God by honoring God with their lips, saying all the right pious things, but the problem is their hearts were far away from God and no love for God, no passion for God. 
No genuine, sincere interest in God. The Pharisees' interest was obeying certain commands so that they would appear righteous. But they didn't love God. That's the very first command, friends. Love the Lord God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. That's the chief responsibility for anybody. Loving God. And what Jesus says is, you don't love God. You're making it look like you love God. But you're just going through the motions, Pharisees. You're going through the motions. I mean, you know what that's like, probably. We've all been in places where we've gone through the motions. You've seen, you know, in sports, you see at the end of the season, maybe a football team, they've had a bad record, they're not making it into the playoffs. But they got one last game, and so they play the game, and they're uninspired, and what people say is, they're going through the motions. They have no heart for it. Or uh, that last semester of college, I know for me, my last semester at Ball State, You know, you're just so anxious to get out of Ball State. My last semester, I'm telling you, I was going through the motions. I got a C in badminton. (laughs) I am serious. I gave no time to that class at all. I was going through the motions. My heart was not into it. And the Pharisees here, their heart is not into it. They're giving the appearance that they're into it, but... What they have embraced is what is called traditionalism. There's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. There's a guy named Pelican who has given a distinction between the two. Tradition is the living faith of those now dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those still living. Tradition is good. We're benefiting from those who have gone before us, the living faith of those who have passed away, and we maintain their, their views. That's tradition. Traditionalism, though, is just maintaining certain policies when our hearts are far away from God. And the Pharisees have fallen into this. Friends, there's just a challenge for all of us. It's easy, isn't it, as Christians, to fall into just going through the motions. Are you going through the motions right now? Is that where you are in your Christian life? Your heart is cold and empty. Well, how were the Pharisees particularly doing this? And so verses 7 and 8, as the passage goes on, here's how they were going through the motions, or the the way in which this was happening. Verse 7, worshiping me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So there it is. They're, They're teaching as doctrines, that is, they're teaching as Scripture, commandments, rules, regulations that mere men have come up with. That's tradition. Verse 8, he even kind of steps it up a little bit. It's not just that you consider tradition equal to divine command, but verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. In fact, you're exalting the tradition of men above the command of God. You're making Scripture subordinate to tradition. J.C. Ryle says this, Whenever a man takes upon him to make additions to the Scriptures, he is likely to end with valuing his own additions above Scripture itself. It's just the way our hearts is. We just like ourselves more than we like what we find in the Scriptures. What Jesus is trying to point out here is that it is better not to just put a fence around Scripture, but to use Scripture as a fence around tradition. To use Scripture as a fence around tradition. The Pharisees had totally lost sight of this. They had their fence as a fence around Scripture, but that fence had become like a great big giant brick wall that obscured Scripture so they couldn't see anything in Scripture anymore. And all they valued was their tradition. And so Jesus 
goes on and he gives an example of how they do this. Verse 9, the example is this thing called korban. And so in verse 9, he basically repeats what is said in 7 and 8. He just says, you have a fine way. Do you notice kind of a little bit of sarcasm there in Jesus? Yeah, you guys have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. And then he goes on to explain. He gives an example. At the very end, you'll see many such things you do. So they do all kinds of things like this. But Jesus just chooses, okay, here, let me just give you one example, Pharisees, of how you do this. It's this thing called korban. What is korban? <clears throat> well, here's the way korban worked. Korban was kind of like deferred giving in an estate plan. So the way korban would work, it's like this. A son... <clears throat> of Jewish parents would have certain possessions and maybe property, and what he could do is declare his possessions to be korban. And what that meant was, I'm declaring the things that I own to be devoted to God. Do you see that? In end of verse 11, korban, that is given to God. So if you declare your possessions korban, what you're saying is that upon my death, all that I own is going to transfer to the temple. And the temple will now own the things that I own. And this is a way of showing devotion to, to God. I'll declare it Korban. When I die, the temple will get all that I own. But what if during the time of this son's life, his parents fall into need? What if they get sick? What if they fall into financial problem? And they're needy. And they come and they look to their son and they say, son, we need your help. What can the son do in this situation? And the example to those who hold the traditions of the elders is nothing. Sorry, you cannot help your parents. See, that's what Jesus is, is pointing out. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Uh, verse 11, but if you say... But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So the, sin is, the son is in a situation where he has promised that his possessions would go to the temple, and that would mean that he could not use any of his possessions to help his parents. But here's the interesting thing, is that even during that time, while the son was alive, he could still benefit from the things that he owned. So, in many cases, Corban was just a way of making sure that nobody else gets to use my stuff, except for me, until I die, even mom and dad. And this is the kind of thing that drives Jesus crazy. This is, this is so contrary. Do you see what he says in verse 10? Moses said, he's referring to scripture there, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment. Later in Exodus, it's also said, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Jesus is saying, that's scripture. That's your chief responsibility to obey what God says. But now you've got this Korban thing, and you're obeying the tradition of the elders and neglecting your parents so that you can look good by saying you've devoted it all to God. That's the example. That's how deep the Pharisees had fallen in to obeying tradition. It's one of the reasons why on Reformation Sunday we're so grateful for a doctrine that has been recovered through 
the Reformation that's called sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Scripture alone. Our Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, here's a good use of tradition, okay? In our tradition as Presbyterians, we have a Westminster Confession of Faith. We think it's a good tradition. It's subordinate to Scripture, not equally authoritative to Scripture, but it, but it helps us to understand things. And so here's what the Confession says. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence can be deduced from Scripture. Not everything in Scripture is as clear as we would like it to be, but some things are deduced from Scripture properly and can be authoritative. Unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit, that's what these guys, Braun and Dan Lafferty, were relying on. They got some new revelation to kill this woman. Scripture says, no, no new revelations of the Spirit nor the traditions of men. These are not authoritative for us. Only Scripture and Scripture alone. This is not just a confessional thing. The, the Bible says this kind of thing often. The Scripture teaches us about itself. So, for instance, Deuteronomy says this, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Don't add or subtract from Scripture. Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Don't add some new spiritual revelation. Don't add traditions to the word. Revelation 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Lots of warnings against adding to Scripture. Sola Scriptura. It's one of the legacies of the Reformation. Friends, this does not mean solo Scripture. It doesn't mean that it's just you with your Bible and that you don't need any help. That's not what it means. You need the help of your pastors and your elders. You need the help of those who have gone before, the help of confessions and creeds. It's not solo Scriptura. It doesn't mean you're doing this on your own. It doesn't mean that the Bible teaches you about everything you might like to know about. Scripture's not going to teach you how to cook. It's not going to teach you how to fix your car engine. There's a lot of things Scripture does not speak to. We don't expect Scripture to address everything, nor is Scripture the only book for us to read. You can consider other sources. All truth is God's truth, and where you find truth, you should embrace it. It's not that the Scripture is the only book to read, but it is that Scripture is the final authority. The final authority is not how you feel about things. It's not what your heart is telling you. It's not what works for you in any given situation. It's not popular opinion and what the culture says is right. None of those things has authority in the life of the Christian. Only Scripture. And what we find in Scripture is everything necessary for your salvation and for what you need to know about how to live as a Christian. In Scripture is everything you need to know about a loving God who sent a Savior into the world in the name of Jesus 
to obey the law for you, to die on a cross so that you could be forgiven, and to raise from the dead for your justification and to overcome the devil and the enemy of death. And in Scripture we find the call to all of us to repent and believe the gospel. It's basically all you need to know to be saved. Scriptures are clear about that. Scriptures also give us much in how to live and follow Jesus all the days of our lives. All that is necessary for being saved and living as a faithful Christian in the Scripture. So how do we know? How do we know when we're hearing God's voice? Friends, I just say don't, don't rely on tradition. Don't rely on some voice that you hear speaking to you from the heavens. Whenever Scripture is read, when you hear it read... When you sit down with a Bible in your lap and you read the Bible, when you sit and you hear the Bible faithfully preached, you're hearing the voice of God. Don't underestimate that. I know it seems like in your quiet times it's just this kind of repetitious thing. You're having trouble staying awake. Me too. But you're hearing from God in those moments. God is speaking through the Scriptures. I can't end this sermon without referring to Martin Luther, and the story that is most often told about him is one that I've told before and will tell again today because it is appropriate to this topic, but it was in 1521, so it was about four years after the Reformation had started, and there was this event called the Diet of Worms. Diet is just another word for like a formal meeting. Luther had been proclaiming, writing about all the doctrines of the Reformation, some of the doctrines that Pastor Brian was talking about earlier, about the priesthood, and certainly the doctrines of sola fide, and the doctrine of sola scriptura, and Luther had been writing about these things. Well, he got in big trouble with the church, because the things he was writing violated the tradition of the church at the time, and so Luther was called before authorities in the church, and before the Holy Roman Emperor called before them all, and the demand upon him was to recant everything that he had written. And so <clears throat> Luther spent some time praying, reflecting, thinking about it. He came back before the gathering, he said this, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Let the same be said for all of us who call Jesus Lord. Lord, thank you for speaking to us in your word. Lord, we acknowledge we would be lost without your revelation. We would not know our right hand from our left. And we would have no knowledge of how to know that you love us and that eternal life is ours, that our sins can be forgiven. This is all for us in the scripture. Thank you, Lord, not only for what you've done in Jesus, but for recording these things in the pages of Scripture, preserving them over the centuries, that sitting here today in Yorktown, Indiana, in 2022, we benefit from your Scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for telling us how. Thank you for all the promises of eternal life that are ours in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.